This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and on this episode, I'll be looking at the reasons behind yet another bad day for stock markets, as well as how product shortages are starting to impact companies. Now, joining me is Danny Hewson, who will be talking to Lisa Webster from AJ Bell about potential changes to the power of attorney. Hi, Dan. I'll also be looking at the latest developments for women's state pension campaigners. And later in the show, I know you're going to be chatting with Nitesh Shah from Wisdom Tree about gold. Yeah, that's right. And I'll also be talking to US company XPO about why the logistics industry is incredibly busy. And we've got Jenny Owen on Olympics treasures that sell for thousands. First up, let's talk markets and why share prices have taken another big hit. Uh, you know, both Danny and I have to comment on markets and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure, Danny, you've been as busy as I have uh, trying to get your head around what's been going on. It, it, how stressful would you say the last week has been for you? Well, it's it's been nutty, hasn't it? Because on the one hand, you see these great big falls and then the next day, it's as if investors have woken up and sort of shaken themselves off. And, and then the markets are clawing their way back pretty much. I mean, certainly we're seeing that sort of boomerang effect more in the United States than we are in the UK. But yeah, volatile has definitely been the word. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, we had this chap on the podcast from the asset management firm Ruffer. And he said, wouldn't it be ironic if the 19th of July Freedom Day in the UK represented the top of the market. Well, he was almost right. It was <laughs> it was the worst single day for markets in a very long time. You know, just in a single day, the FTSE 100 was down 2.3%. Um, in Russia, its main stock market, the Russia trading system, was down 3%. Um, and even in the US, the Dow Jones was down 2.1%. I mean, and this is all down to worries about slowing economy, but at the same time, worries about rising inflation. So that's that's the definition of stagflation. And I think I hear so many stories about people being vaccinated and then catching COVID. You know, this seems to be spreading fast again. And I think you know, that could impact spending either because people are ill, they're isolating, or, or you know, there's getting negative headlines that might make people wary of sort of spending money. And at the same time, we've got lots of disruption to businesses, and, and that's out of central banks' control. You know, I'm talking about higher costs from supply chain disruptions and less availability of parts and labor. And this certainly, in the last few days as we record this, we've had lots of companies reporting their second quarter numbers. And there's definitely evidence that businesses are being affected. You know, I'll, I'll give you some examples now. So Electrolux, which is Europe's, uh, Europe's biggest home appliances maker, has just warned that supply chain problems could get worse. Now, it's been struggling with irregular deliveries of components, and that's affected its production efficiency. Now, the truck maker Volvo has warned of more production disruptions and stoppages this year because of chip shortages. Um, and then we had Fever Tree, um, the tonic water company. Its share price fell 8% on the 20th of July when it flagged a hit to margins. And of course, that prompted a really big round of um, downgrades to earning forecasts by analysts. 
And then production at some of Nike's largest plants in Vietnam have been disrupted because COVID spreading through the factories. And you, know, you have to wonder whether that's going to sort of have a knock-on effect with the availability of its products. Yeah, and, and I just think that it's... You know, you're definitely in this situation where shortages are all over the, the papers and everyone is reading about them. But the Bank of America has done a bit of uh, analysis and it thinks that if you analyse the number of stories that you, you're seeing now versus you know a few months ago, actually, could shortages have actually peaked? You know, it, it's certainly suggesting in the US that labour shortages are starting to ease. Um, it says there's fewer mentions of, um, you know, DIY products um, being, you know, not being available on the shelves. So, you know, I'm just wondering on that basis, perhaps we are past peak shortage and, and you know, this disruption might actually settle down by Christmas. Ah, oh, you say that. However, we have had warnings from a, a number of industry insiders in the food industry saying, look, you need to be aware that there is a potential that your Christmas dinner could be affected oh my God. because of these shortages. <laughs> so um, do you like turkey, pigs in blankets? I'll I, I take anything. It's all good. All good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, th those are a couple of the things that they pointed to as potentially being in short supply this Christmas. And, and that's because of a whole variety of things, from a shortage of delivery drivers, abattoir staff and other workers, which you were talking about inflation, well, driving up pay and other costs. In fact, you know, apparently you've now got to pay ahead of time for lorry drivers to come and take your load if you're going to be absolutely um, sure that you're going to get what you need out and also, of course, there is a shortage of vets as well because um, of an increase in processing demands related to Brexit. But there's also, I'm sure you've heard this phrase a lot, the pandemic, mm -hmm. which is uh, affecting an awful lot of businesses at the moment. Everything from, you know, my local pub was shut uh, last week because so many of the staff had been pinged there, right through to obviously car manufacturers and those meat processing plants. And Brexit is a big issue. And in fact, we've had a warning from the boss of Marks and Spencer that it's gonna to have to cut the kind of products that it provides for Christmas to people in Northern Ireland. And that is because they've got real concerns about when they ship products over to Northern Ireland, they've got to have those checks. If they've got something like a pie, where you've got lots of different ingredients, then it just becomes untenable. Now, of course, Archie Norman has made this warning on the Today programme um, on the same day that the government is taking a look at uh, forthcoming Brexit customs checks. So will it all be sorted out by Christmas? Is it all just, you know, stirring the pot a little bit? Well, we've got 157 days, mm -hmm. 157 days till Christmas, I can't believe I just said that. I think you need to make some room in your freezer. Start to fill it up now with all those um, meat treats. 
to make sure your, your Christmas is a good one. So, yeah, I think it's clear that we're going to have to look for, for, for comments on disruptions in figures from companies as they're reporting over the coming months. And, and I think the market will be paying real close attention to, to any signs of sort of negative news in there. And, um, you know, that is going to be the overriding influence on share prices rather than perhaps um, the top line revenue growth. But, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting nugget from the Bank of America is that, you know, if you do have a period where these quarterly earnings are, you know, the profit or revenues is better than expected, and that doesn't actually guarantee share price success. It found that 75% of um, of quarterly uh, periods where, when you had uh, earnings beats actually saw sh- you know, falling share prices. So um, it, it, there's a lot of, lot of anticipation for the, the quarterly numbers that are now being produced. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it could be a bit of a tough summer for, for investors out there. Yeah, I think investors are sort of thinking that we've sort of reached that peak reopening boom and that it's just not sustainable going forward. And, you know, when we get back to business as usual, at least we have some idea of what to expect from quarterly earnings. But will it be business as normal? I mean, it's just impossible to say at the moment. But judging by comments that you made earlier, moving goods from A to B can be a challenge with the world trying to now get back on its feet after the pandemic, there is a big uptick in the amount of goods being sent. So logistic companies are in huge demand. Now, Dan recently met up with Mark Manduka from Expio Logistics, which is a $16 billion US listed company that is about to split into two. One part's gonna focus on transport and the spin-off business will be logistics under the name of GXO. Mark is the Chief Investment Officer for GXO, and here's what he had to say. Okay, so various parts of the world are sort of facing supply chain problems and a shortage of drivers. And, you know, is this affecting your business as well? I, I, I have to tell you, it affects our business to the positive. Uh, and it's not, not good news to say that because we obviously don't like malaise in any part of the supply chain. Let me explain. Whether it's inflation, whether it's warehouse price increases, whether it's shortage of truck drivers... All of these aspects, in essence, make people on and customers question their supply chain. In essence, they they consider why they're doing it the way they're doing it. And at the same time, in tandem to all the difficulties that we're seeing in the global supply chain, particularly the shortage of containers and the blockages that exist from arm to arm within the supply chain, what you're also seeing is you're seeing a shift taking place in regards to reverse logistics. This is related to e-commerce. This is This is consumers returning items. And let me make it very clear. In the past, if you went back, say, 10 years, what would happen is is that 5 to 10% of items that you bought would be returned. That would be the old world. In the new world, 30% of items that you buy are being returned. And as a result, customers are kind of pulling their hair out right now. Not only are they having to deal with the macro, you eloquently explained, Daniel, the inflation elements, warehouse price increases, whether it's issues on the truck driver side, the shortage of containers. In tandem to that, as I mentioned, you're having to deal with a huge working capital complexity in your business. And that is driving people to reconsider why they're doing it in-house and thinking about why they should do it out-house, i.e. outsourcing it to a third-party logistics player like us. But does that not mean that you, you still need to hire Lots of people, though, to do the work. Is there there still a shortage of individuals around to be able to skilled enough to do this role? So so the beauty of the way our contracts are are written 
And in many ways, a growing company is always going to have to hire more people. So yes, we are hiring people and we love working with our 100,000 teammates. But in so many ways, Daniel, the reality is, is that our contracts are written in a way that we don't actually do anything other than pass the inflation on to our end customers. This is a hand-in-glove type operation. This is a Cadillac service that we provide to our customers. It's a dedicated service. We're completely unconflicted, unlike some of our competitors, where we offer a, a customer in so many ways, we control their reputation in our hands and we take that very seriously as a business. So we, have, um, we are growing, we're hiring, and on top of all of that, we pass the inflation onto our customers. So it doesn't necessarily impact our immediate business model, but clearly in turn, our customers will pass it on to the consumer. Yeah. So I know that you work with companies like ASOS and Nestle mm. and Electrolux. So, so I presume this involves having you know, a big warehouse with lots of robotics and automation, but you know, is it sort of a standard setup for all your customers or does each one have something bespoke? Everything is unique for our customers. We we write, really like to tailor the service. And I think what we're best, at class at, best in class at is, is tailoring those, those very precise and complex solutions for our customers. And we do it at scale and with speed. Is that consolidation actually takes place via inertia. And what I mean by that is, is when contracts come up for bid, what will most likely happen here, Daniel, is that you will see that there'll be a migration towards the scale players, the ones that are global, the ones that have those good balance sheets and the ones that can provide that all too necessary technology, which drives those efficiency savings for our customers. Manufacturing supply chains are getting more and more complex by the day, and that complexity cannot be done by small players in the market. You're going to see a migration towards scale. I'll give you a very sort of tangible example so that you can you, you, you understand it in, in, in layperson's terms. You know, the manufacturing of a phone, you know, the phone that you have in your pocket today, was involved involved roughly 43 countries in putting it together. And if one piece of that supply chain breaks today, because say, for example, a plant catches COVID, you actually see the whole chain break down. And that complexity is only rising going forwards. Supply chain is becoming more and more important for our customers. And that's going to drive them towards being with scalable global players that have known ability to deal and handle large multinational blue chip customers, which is what sits at the center of our business model. The big will get bigger here, Daniel, in this industry over the next 10 years. Now, earlier in the show, we mentioned how stock markets were going through a difficult patch. History would suggest that gold should do well in more volatile times, yet the price of gold today is no higher than it was 12 months ago. Dan caught up with Wisdom Tree's Director of Research, Nitesh Shah, to find out why the precious metal isn't behaving as one might expect. So let's, should we start with a big question that lots of people are asking? You know, if gold is meant to be the ultimate hedge against inflation, why isn't this metal price soaring in the current environment? That's a great question. So um, from the work that I've done, uh, looking at some of the drivers behind gold, um, you can't really isolate one thing that, that moves gold prices. There's several things that move gold prices. Um, Inflation is one of them, but you've also got um, the dollar. So as dollar appreciates, that tends to be gold price negative. Um, you also got movement in treasury yields. When treasury yields rise, that tends to be gold price uh, uh, negative. Um, and also you've got um, investor sentiment towards gold. 
Now, so while inflation has been uh, an upward force for gold prices, the uh, firm dollar has been a downward force for for gold prices. They seem to be cancelling each other out. Uh, but, but you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, we actually we were seeing uh, some some decent moves in, in gold price as these inflation surprises were coming in quite thick. There's been a suggestion earlier this year that a lot of investors seeking to diversify their portfolio perhaps beyond equities and bonds, have been putting money into Bitcoin rather than gold, which which might have been sort of the obvious um, choice in the past. But I'm wondering if you think this is still the case now, given that cryptocurrencies seem to be less popular of late. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a lot of people do compare gold and Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Um, they're both... Uh, assets that are mined, uh, quote unquote. So, you know, uh, gold is physically mined, whereas uh, Bitcoin is uh, electronically mined. Um, so that gives them very limited supply. Uh, they act as anti-fiat currencies. So, you know, they, 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 they're quite the opposite of so the dollar or the yen or the euro, where central banks can issue them at, uh, at will. Um, so seen as a pseudo currency uh, that's different to these fiat currencies where supply is controlled, um, there, there seems to be a lot of comparison between the two. And Bitcoin had been seen as the new version of, of gold, sort of gold for a digital age. Um, and I think that has had a lot of appeal, uh, especially with uh, sort of newer or younger, possibly investors. Um, uh, but the behavioral characteristics of the two metals are quite different. Uh, Bitcoin so far has behaved in a very cyclical fashion. Um, so as the economy and everything has done well, it's it's risen. Um, whereas gold remains a defensive type of asset by and large. Um, so when the economy does badly, it it uh, it sort of it, it, there's more interest for gold. So the, the actually the actual behavior is is quite different. Okay, so the, the activities of gold miners seem to have very little impact on the price of gold. But I think if you if you look at perhaps an industry like copper, whenever we get something like a, a labor strikes with a copper mine, it seems to affect the copper price instantly. So why isn't gold affected in this way? That's a, that's another great question. So um, I, I mentioned earlier on we've done some uh, modeling work around gold um, and. When we start that modeling approach, what we want to do is look at all the factors that could, could potentially uh, affect gold. So we took time series of 30 different things, um, you know, including the physical supply and demand of gold through jewelry, through central bank demand, uh, and also looking at on the supply side through mine supply or scrap supply. Um, and we put these things in, into, into the model alongside all those other macro variables. And it turns out, um, what describes gold prices, um, you know, it turns out to be much more macro in nature, less about the supply demand dynamics, and it almost describes gold as that pseudo currency asset. So um, we rejected um, the mine supply of, of gold in, in, in this model. It didn't work out statistically significant. And one of the reasons why is um, if you think about um, gold, the above ground stock of gold is huge and it's easily immobilizable. So if you think about uh, gold that's held in bullion or jewelry, um, that can easily exchange hands very quickly. It's not put into, uh, say, pipe work or wiring like copper is. 
So um, there's the, the stock of gold relative to the flow, what comes out of the mines each year, is, is very large. Contrast that to copper, uh, the stock of copper, um, which is not being used in these you know, electronic applications or in, uh, in, 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 in piping or things like that, is very low relative to what comes out of, uh, out of mines. And I think that describes these, that's one of the things that describes these metals very differently. Um, so, you know, even though, um, you know, gold is subject to labor strikes, it is subject to uh, disruptions, um, the fact that there's other sources of gold available and immobilizable very quickly uh, makes, makes all the difference. Yeah. What about the fact that lots of people during sort of the pandemic have saved up lots of cash, particularly during lockdowns, haven't been going out. Do you think that there's now you know, a capacity amongst lots of people to be able to go out and actually buy gold jewellery or gold bars? Uh, and perhaps this could be a big driver for the gold price. Or do you think that's that's perhaps not going to happen? No, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I think... Um... If we think about the big jewelry consuming markets uh, like India and China, um, we had seen a marked slowdown in jewelry consumption in 2020 and in, in the first half of uh, 2021. Um, you know, the, the jewelry markets in India, in particular, with the uh, Delta variant being so aggressive there, um, you know, had uh, slowed down. You know, again in 2021. Um, but as that starts to ease, you know, and, and that's you know that, that's uh, I guess a bit, a bit of an if, and 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 when that all starts to ease, uh, that that should be quite positive for actually seeing people go out and start buying uh, gold again in jewelry form. Um, I think you know the same argument applies in other parts of the world as well. You know, people once once you're able to go into the shops and go into uh, those those you know lux luxury venues without the fear of of catching viruses and things like that. You know, you can buy uh, more of the metal. But I think one of the other aspects is it's not just related not not just the ability to go out and buy things related related directly to gold. If you're able to go out and buy stuff in general. And simultaneously, we've got all these supply bottlenecks going on. Think about the semiconductor industry, uh, you know, that's causing problems in the, you know, for the car industry, which is jacking up prices there. I think lots of lo prices across a whole suite of goods uh, will increase. And once again, when people look at gold, they look at the inflation hedge, they may say, hold on, let's, let's buy some more gold as that inflation hedge, because everybody's buying more stuff today, yet the supply is not forthcoming. Yes. So, so does this all sort of suggest that you've got a, a positive uh, view on, on sort of the gold price rising over the next 12 months? Yes, that's right. So, um, you know, as I mentioned, we have a model framework for, for gold and I played around with different things in, in, within that model. So if I take consensus views for uh, you know where the where inflation's going, and where treasury yields are going, and where the dollar's going, um, and I plug that into my into my model, we would get gold rising to around nineteen forty uh, by Q one, uh, twenty twenty two. So um, there's more than a hundred dollars increase in per ounce in in gold price between now and then. 
but when looking at the detail behind that consensus, you know, and I took a survey, uh, looked at the survey uh, that Bloomberg conducted back in June, um, it seems that you know treasury yields appear appear quite high relative to where they are today. Um, the dollar remains quite flat in that in that scenario, and inflation remains uh, you know falls down to around the two percent level uh, in in Q one uh, twenty twenty two. Now, to me, I think inflation looks like is lo- looks like it's going to remain higher for longer. Uh, treasury yields have all already fallen much below where consensus uh, was pointing to. And I think that the dollar could be on a structurally weaker path uh, just because deficits in the US have been building up. So factoring all those sorts of things in, we could get gold prices uh, touching the 2000 uh, mark once again. Brilliant. Nitesh, thank you ever so much for, for chatting about all things gold. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Take care. So really interesting stuff from Nitesh, Dan. Um, there's a few personal finance issues to touch on. Yeah, so first up, let's bring on Lisa Webster from AJ Bell to talk about plans to overhaul the lasting power of a turdy system. The government's launched a 12-week consultation to simplify the process and have better safeguards to protect against fraud and abuse. Lisa, what's your take on this? Um. I think it's really good that um, that this is being looked at. I mean, the process for applying for a lasting power of attorney, uh, it's been been pretty similar for the last uh, 36 years or something. Because, I mean, we had lasting power of attorneys came in back in 2007, but before that we had enduring power of attorneys and the process was pretty much the same and they sort of date back to 1985. So it's something that is very much in need of modernization. Um, and the number of people applying for power of attorneys um, is growing um, you know, at quite a rate. I think that last year they had figures for us like 920,000 uh, in, in 2019-20. That's just in one year of applications. And it's, and it's an almost entirely paper-based process at the moment. So even though you can fill in bits and pieces online, you still have to print everything off. Uh, and get it witnessed and send it off to the to be registered with the um, Office of the Public Guardian. So really, anything that we can do to sort of streamline that process, make it smoother, make it much more efficient, basically it's really unsustainable sort of how it is at the moment. Um, so yeah, so, so it's, it's a good thing. I think it's sort of looking at sort of dragging it into the 21st century. So is that the most complicated thing at the moment? making sure that everything is witnessed correctly? It does seem to be uh, sort of, you know, from our point of view as a provider, when we, we get the get the documents in, um, that, yeah, it seems to be one of the biggest issues. And it's also like the biggest delays, and especially given the last year, you know, when people aren't in the same geographical location, if you've got your donor um, and then you've got your person who's being, they're appointing as their attorney. So, you know, most, not always, but most commonly, you know, you'll have a, a, an L, a parent uh, and then an adult child, you know, if you're having a power of attorney for them, you know, they didn't necessarily, you know, going to be in the same place um, and actually physically getting signatures and getting documents witnessed. And you have to do them in the right order. There's timing issues. You can't just do it all in one go and things going back and forth that can really lengthen the process. So, you know, one of the things they're looking at when their proposals is, you know, having some kind of uh, verification online, sort of electronic signatures, looking looking at ways that they can do that. Um, 
So, you know, that will really speed up the process. And in a lot of ways, it will improve with the safeguarding as well, I think, because, you know, if you have sort of um, verification of ID and things like that. And the process can be quite emotive and quite upsetting in some cases, particularly if you've got sort of ill health or, or mental health involved. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing if when you add to it the complications and the time that it can take to get this thing through, anything that speeds it up has to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree with that. I think it's important to remember um, with, with power of attorneys that the person who's uh, the donor, the person who's having an attorney put in place for them, they have to have mental capacity. So, you know, if you wait until somebody loses that, it's too late, you can't have one. And then it's all court of protection and lots more complicated processes and things like that if you to look after their affairs. So, you know, it's a really good idea to do this sort of as, as routine, sort of as soon as possible, really. Um, I mean, we automatically, I think with power of attorneys, you, you think of elderly people, you think of people with dementia and Alzheimer's as being, you know, people who, you know, really need to have one in place. But of course, you know, I think accidents, unfortunately, can happen to anybody at any point in their life. Um, so, you know, it's not, you know, a bad idea to have one in place for, you know, responsible adults who has finances and, and affairs that need looking after. Um, but going back to your point sort of, you know, about the timing and speeding it up, obviously, if you people are starting to show the signs of, of mental decline, um, you know, you need to get this in place before they are deemed to have lost capacity before it is too late. And if you've got a really lengthy process, you know, that can be a barrier and it might be too late. Whereas if you've got something which is much more streamlined and you can put in place whilst they still, you know, have that ability to, you know, make those decisions about who it is they want to be their attorney, who it is that they trust, what their wishes are, what they can express their preferences, you know, they can do that and, you know, they're coherent enough to do that. The fact that it takes them much less time, you know, that's going to help things, it's going to help people in a lot of situations. Elisa, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. So there's also been an update on the WASPI campaign, which stands for Women Against State Pension Inequality. So Danny, what's been going on there? Well, we've spoken about this many times before because millions of women were affected by increase in their state pension age. It, it originally was put forward in the 1995 Pension Act. It, it shifted between 2010 and 2018, effectively bringing the age in line with that for a man to take a pension. Now, What's happened is the parliamentary ombudsman has been looking into this and it has ruled that government officials were just too slow to tell many women that they would be affected by the rising state pension age. Now, it doesn't guarantee that the WASPy women are going to now get compensation because the ombudsman has no power to refund lost pensions. It's also unable to recommend that anyone receives their state pension any earlier than the current law allows, but it can recommend that it happens. So certainly there's been um, a, a lot of um, comment from the WASP Women campaign that this is a step forward. And it's about 3.8 million women born in the mid-50s who've been impacted by this. And what the Ombudsman has said is that the Department of Work and Pensions really failed to act quickly enough once it became aware that a significant number of women just weren't aware of the changes. 
it says that a letter that went out should have been sent to them 28 months before it actually was. Um, we don't know whether or not this is going to result in compensation, as I say. Um, we do know that um, there have been a number of court cases which have found in favour of the government and a Department of Work and Pension spokesperson said, look, both the High Court and Court of Appeal have supported the actions of the DWP under successive governments dating back to 1995, and the Supreme Court refused the claimant's permission to appeal. Uh, and it said it decided more than 25 years ago to make the state pension age the same for men and women. And when we're talking about potentially compensating all of these women, well, it could amount to about six years of state pension payments. So considering the state of UK finances at the moment, one might think that it's likely to fall on deaf ears, but... Clearly, it's been a big move forward. Yeah. So finally, it's all the start of the Olympics, which makes it perfect timing to talk about sports memorabilia. So, Jen, what have you found? Thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, the Olympic Games are starting on Friday, and I've been thinking about memorabilia. So posters tend to be the most affordable collectible, with modern examples starting at £100. The first official Olympic poster from the 1912 Stockholm Games sold in 2012 for £2,600, but that's likely to be a lot higher now. The iconic London 1948 poster with Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament in the background went under the hammer for £1,000 last month. Olympic torches vary in the number produced. The Berlin 1936 torches, with around 3,800 made, sell for about £6,500 now, whereas the London 2012 games made 8000 and they're worth about two grand. The priciest ones are those made for the 1952 Helsinki Olympics. Now, only 22 were made, and 15 of those were created in Hallmark Silver, Six years ago, one sold for £420,000. And in the run-up to the London 2012 uh, Olympic Games, you might remember that the flame was transported in lanterns when travelling via plane. There were 11 lanterns used, and they're fetching about £23,000. But if you're, wow. yeah, if, you, if you're saving up for a medal, you may want to wait for a little bit because Olympians rarely sell them. And the record for a medal was the great black American sprinter Jesse Owens, whose gold from the 1936 Berlin Games sold for £1.1 million. Now, as with most collectibles, part of the value is the story behind the item. So, Jen, judging by previous shows, you've talked about collecting trainers, collecting rare coins, and now you're telling us that you've got Olympic torches in your house. Is this... You must have the most incredible collection. Is it like a museum? Do we have to pay sort of 50p entry to have a look around your, your stash? In my one-bed flat, <laughs> it's just storage for all this amazing stuff. That'd be, that'd be brilliant. <laughs> Danny, are you a my, collector? Yeah, no, well, I'm not, but my husband is, and the house is absolutely full of film memorabilia, from film posters, even cans of film. Uh, it, it's quite bonkers, actually. Brilliant. Well, that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where I'll be talking to a fund manager about where to invest if both the growth and recovery trades are now done. So I hope you'll join us then and thanks very much for listening to this episode. 
Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.